0: Alright, well good morning everyone. Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. We're going to go all the way through chapter 8. Um, we're continuing in this series we call Upside Down. Now, we've been going through 2 Corinthians all the way through the fall here. And what we've been doing as we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've been highlighting the upside down nature of what it means to be a Christian in the current world that we live in. Because oftentimes if we apply the gospel and we apply what we're reading in the Bible to our daily lives, it will look upside down and completely backwards from the values of what we would normally think, and certainly from what the world around us thinks. Now last week we talked about how godly grief actually can cause us to grow and grow together as a Christian community, as we lean into one another and as we lean ultimately into Christ himself. And that being the opposite of worldly grief, which causes us to feel shame and sorrow and ultimately to pull away from each other. Well, this week we're going to go all the way through chapter 8, like I said, and the Apostle Paul is going to turn his sights uh, towards generosity. And we're going to be talking about that for a while. And generosity in the kingdom of God, generosity looking a lot different among God's people. And we'll see, as usual, that the gospel leads us to live lives that are radically different from what we would normally want to live. Before we dive into the text this morning, let's pray together and ask for help. Father, uh, we thank you so much for the ability to approach your word this morning. And Lord, I just ask that as we uh, read together, as we hear the gospel together, uh, that nothing would get in the way of your word, and your spirit working on our hearts this morning. Um, just allow us to worship you through listening to your word, and let none of us get in the way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start, start off chapter one, or chapter eight, verse one in 2 Corinthians. It says this, we want, to, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Okay, so what's going on here in the text? We're talking about the collection that Paul and the apostles had organized for the believers in Jerusalem who had undergone economic difficulty, after a famine. Uh, the church as individuals there, the church and individuals there, had been hit really hard. And so the apostles thought it would be right for the other churches, spread throughout the regions where the gospel had already gone, to put together a collection to go back to Jerusalem and help the saints there. So this is a relief effort from other churches to other churches in in different regions. That's what we're specifically talking about. It's a specific relief effort among churches. So Paul begins by talking about the grace of God among the churches in Macedonia. So it's helpful for us to understand Macedonia and and what we're talking about. Modern-day Greece uh, would have at this time be split up into two regions, Macedonia and Achaia. So, Macedonia had the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica, right, each having their respective churches in each city, while Achaia had the capital city of Corinth. So, we're really talking about modern day Greece, but two different regions within it. So, when he's speaking of the Macedonians, he's speaking of those churches specifically, like the Philippians and the Thessalonians. Now, it seems that this region wasn't as wealthy as the Corinthians. Right? In fact, Paul mentions in the text here that they had been through a specific affliction that caused them trouble and were, in his words, uh, in extreme poverty. I mean, he's speaking of the Macedonians. But even though they had troubles of their own, that didn't stop them from giving sacrificially. The thing he wants them to learn is not how much they gave. Paul almost seems to think that part not relevant. But the fact that they gave out of their own need. He wants the Corinthians to see that they gave out of their own poverty. They had excuses not to give, but they gave what they could. It appears uh, that Paul is addressing a potential issue before it happens. The Corinthian church had volunteered to be a part of this collection, this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. But a year later, it didn't seem that they were so eager to help out. So they had lost their initial urgency to be part of this giving, so Paul is prepping them and letting them know that those who are coming to them are preparing to gather that collection. So he's talking about the Macedonians and they, that, that they gave sacrificially and not just willingly, right? That they had pleaded to be a, pleaded to have the favor, as the text says, of taking part in this giving. That's how the ESV Bible translated here, but they're Literally two words that are used here in verse 4, grace and fellowship. So first, grace, used many times in this section alone, I think within these next two chapters we're going to be going through, probably about ten times it talks about grace. It's a recurring theme. Paul sees this ability to give itself as a grace, and he's going to really harp on that idea here through the rest of the chapter. He's, he's talking about their ability to give as being a gift itself from God. Not a grace for those in need primarily, but a grace to those who are in the act of giving, as the Macedonians had pleaded to be part of this grace. So what does it do when we take our view of giving and start viewing it as a gift of God? So it actually makes the focus, and what he's trying to do here, he's trying to take the focus off of the giving itself, those who are giving and those who are receiving, and actually makes it all about God's goodness to us. Our giving, our ability to bless others is really about God's goodness to us. In other words, we get to partner with God in his provision. Now, theologically, this is crucial because it takes the focus off of the person giving and it puts it onto the one who allows them to give. Or to put it simply, it's all about Jesus, right? The other word used here in verse 4 that's translated as uh, taking part is in other translations used a lot of times as fellowship. So that same Greek word is translated as fellowship in a lot of other translations. So taking part or fellowship, sharing, right? Not only in the, the things the other saints need supplying for those in need, but, but sharing in, or fellowshipping in the actual suffering and affliction that the saints in Jerusalem are experiencing. So this is what Christian fellowship is all about. When we're in Christian community, there are a lot of things that we can feel good about, right? A lot of times when things are going well, we're making friends with people we normally wouldn't. We share meals and prayers. We get all the good feelings of being close with fellow believers. But greater than all of that are the times when we fellowship in someone else's struggle. When we fellowship in someone else's affliction, we enjoy each other when times are good. But it's through the difficulty that we experience a more intense fellowship. Verse 8 goes on. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. We'll stop there for a minute, because there's a couple key things here that we have to go over. So first, let's look at verse 8. What is Paul doing here? He says, this is not a command. And by doing that, there's three things that he's accomplishing with that first verse. There's three things. He's, first, he's not laying any new obligations or rules on them, right? He's not giving them any new commands. He's, they're still free. Secondly, that act of being free to give allows them to grow in their faith. By not being commanded to do something, they can choose to do something, they discern to do something, and thereby grow in their own personal faith. Think about it. If it was something was dictated to them as a must, then they don't have to discern what is right. He leaves them the ability to decide individually what they can and will give. And the third thing he does, is and this is very important, and this is this idea that he keeps harping on again and again, that serving others in Jerusalem through their finances is a grace of God. They get to ex They get to experience an element of the grace of God by serving, by sacrificing. So not only are they free and growing in their faith, but they're allowed to experience a grace, a gift from God. And we'll talk about more of that act of grace in a minute. minute. But I think that we'll see in verse 9 kind of the most important aspect of this whole chapter. Giving and generosity Fellowship and affliction, what is it all about? Well, it's all about Jesus. We don't get to just practically apply this to one situation. This is much bigger, and he reminds us of this. This whole motivation for our our giving is found in the person of Jesus. This is a heart issue for us. And Jesus gives us the ultimate model for a heart, right? Jesus goes from being rich to being in poverty. There's a great theological nugget also here that's really important for us, and we don't want to miss, because this actually helps us. It may seem like it's not relevant to giving out of poverty, but this is a a quick reminder for us of the eternality of the Son of God. The eternality of Jesus himself. You see, he went from being rich to being poor. Well, we know that Jesus wasn't born rich, right? Right? This is a reminder for us. He wasn't born rich. You might remember the story about him being laid in a manger or an animal food trough. There's a lot of biblical evidence that Joseph and Mary were were not affluent at all. The point is he, Jesus, was something much more before that. He was eternal before he was born. I know you can say, yes, Andrew, of course we believe that. That's a basic Christian truth. But just put a highlighter on that in your mind for a moment. Now, that theological truth that we take as a basic Christian Orthodox belief is evidenced by scriptures like this one. Now, this is one of the proof texts that we would go to to talk about Jesus being rich eternally, God, before he became a man. But that's not Paul's main point in this letter. He's actually highlighting what? What part of that is he highlighting? Jesus' poverty. In a similar text, right, Philippians 2, he says this, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God," again, pointing to his eternality, "...did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself..." by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The point is, Jesus, who was God, who is God, did not esteem his position above his people. He emptied himself of his glory to become a servant. This is key to the incarnation. This is key to the cross. This is key to the gospel message itself. Jesus became man and died so that He might be able to have us with him to save us from our own sin. Paul applies that gospel message in verse 9 now to how we take care of others. If God desired so deeply to care for us on such a large scale, what do we do with our lives here in this small-scale world? Paul says one practical way, of course, is the way that we share what we have with those in need. And of course, gospel-based motivation doesn't affect just our giving. Gospel motivation works its way into every single facet of our life. It changes the way we plan our lives. It changes the way we talk to each other. Paul says here is an obvious way that you can apply this gospel truth. The judgment he references to in verse 10 is that the whole action of giving, the whole action of giving to the saints, right, is, is an act of grace itself. It's called several times an act of grace again and again. He's not talking about earthly benefits that we get either. He's not talking about a, a send your check today and God will pay your rent kind of situation. Right? He's talking about a spiritual truth and a spiritual good for each of us. This is for your spiritual eternal soul. In other words, this is training us to become Christ-like. Training us to become Christ-like. Participating in a grace is what God desires for us. Participating in the actions of grace in the world is what God desires for us as part of our sanctification part of our being set apart from the world around us. And sanctification is always for our ultimate good. Paul again warns, I'm sorry, Paul again wants to keep hitting on that motivation piece, the why we do this. This is more about the readiness, as the text says, or rather the heart in which we serve. Paul says it's actually the readiness that makes the gift enough not the amount of the gift. Now again, that's pretty backwards from the way the world around us works. To say that our dollar amount someone gives is not the point, just doesn't calculate in the world's economy. It doesn't calculate in in earthly wisdom. But God's economy is not reliant on us, it's reliant on Him. It means that this fairness the text is talking about is judged by God and not by us. He's the one who actually decides what is fair. The text further explains this for the church by referencing Exodus. You see, the quotation that he does there at the end of what we just read is taken out of Exodus 16, where it says um, that each one had enough. Now, the story that he's referencing in Exodus 16 is the Israelites as they picked up manna in the wilderness. We talked about that in the reading of the law a little bit this morning as well. But one of the more spectacular stories of how God provided for his people when they're in the desert, when they're in a desert and there's nothing to eat at all, God just sends them food. God sent manna to settle on the ground. And that story shows us how God provides sometimes miraculously for his people. In Exodus 16, God sends manna every morning to cover the ground. Every morning when they wake up, they find a white flaky substance that they can eat, and it tastes like wafers made with honey. Now their instructions were to go out and to collect as much as they could. That was the instruction that was given. Go out and collect as much as you can. This is important. Some collected more. And obviously, some collected less. Everyone had different abilities. Not every single person was able to go out and gather the same amount. Some gathered more, and some gathered less. So if they collected a lot, when they went back to measure it, it was an omer. That's the unit of measurement uh, that they had. It was about a day's need for what you would need to eat. It was an omer. That's the measurement that God also told Moses each person would have, enough for that day. But those that collected just a little bit, when they went back into their tent and measured it as well, it was still an omer. So no matter what they collected, either they collected a whole lot or they collected just a little bit, they would go back and measure it and be exactly one omer, which is what they needed to eat for one day. It's incredible. God supplied the food miraculously, right? But if that didn't drive home the point, he miraculously made everyone's portions enough. Anyone who tried to collect extra even for the next day, if they collected more to store and put away, it would rot overnight and grow worms and make their whole tent stink. Anyone who tried to collect extra and and didn't use it to get an extra store for the next day, it, it didn't happen. It rotted overnight, except for on Friday nights where he gave them a, a double portion so they didn't have to collect on the Sabbath. You know, God taught them in the wilderness to be reliant on him, and that's the whole point. They were given their daily bread. Jesus reminded his disciples to pray for their daily bread. That's what we ought to ask God for. Daily bread means enough. Now, in God's economy, he chooses to give some of us more. He chooses to give some of us less. And yet still we have enough. Still, miraculously, we have enough. Now, it's not bad that some have more and some have less. That's just the way that God chooses to work. Again, the whole point of this is Jesus and our reliance on him not the amount that we have. We rely on him, not our own efforts. So whether we have more or less, we are still supposed to be fully relying on him for the day's bread. Let's read on in verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Again, who deserves the praise here? God. For what? Titus' heart. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you out of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother, who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by us, appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. For the glory of the Lord himself to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker. For your benefit, and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of your boasting about about our boasting about you to these men. Okay, so he is sending Titus and two nameless brothers. Um, one of them is a famous preacher and explainer of the gospel. He doesn't get named. If you care what scholars think, some think it's Luke. Because Luke was with Paul, traveled on these missions just like this. He was also good at explaining the gospel. Luke wrote a whole book about the gospel with a sequel. Thanks. I'm glad someone got that. But that isn't the point, right? Paul is saying here, here are our emissaries. They carry the authority to collect this. They carry the authority to collect this act of God's grace. Paul does a really good letter in his epistles or his, a uh, really good job in his letters and epistles of, of building others up, about bragging about his fellow ministers, about bragging about those in the churches around him to others, building people up. He brags on his fellow servants. And again, not because of their efforts, right, but because of what God is doing in their efforts. I think we can do a whole lot better as Christians in building each other up and maybe even bragging about each other. When was the last time you pointed out what God was doing in someone else's life? That's a whole other sermon, but there it is. Think about that. Verse 21 said something really important for us to ponder for a moment. If we look back at it. In verse 21 it says, we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Now, this is Paul speaking, the apostle who wrote Galatians. Um, Galatians 1.10 would be one of the verses that comes to my mind when, when he talks like this. Because in Galatians 1.10 he says, If I was seeking the approval of man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we need to take a moment just really quickly to, to examine, is this a blatant contradiction in the way that Paul talks a difference, I think, here between the two is the idea of honor versus the idea of approval. By saying honor, he's talking about the honesty in the way that they are handling the finances of this collection and their actions as they carry out this action, right? As they, as they carry out this, this giving, there's going to be a lot of collecting from different churches, a lot of traveling. There's a lot of opportunity for some of this money to go missing, It's apparent that there were rumors that this collection for the saints was going to be mishandled, that a lot of this was just going to end up in Paul's pocket. But Paul says, no, we will use three men here to go above and beyond to show what is honorable. In that, he builds up an accountability and transparency with the way that their money is handled. That's very important. That's incredibly important, especially when you take into account the what the men have, men have done dishonorably in our modern times with the finances given to them. Right, worldwide Christian ministries, we don't even need to name them because there's many, have been outed in recent years for their usage of funds to do dishonorable things and to spend even more in covering it up. That's why this is important. The approval of men was something that some of these modern-day ministries that have failed had. They had the approval of men. They were very well thought of. So he points out to us, it's not the approval or our outside appearances that matters, but our honorable actions honor God and are a witness to the world around us. Even though we do not aim at our actions We don't don't aim our actions at gaining approval from men. We still have to stay above reproach. And that's what he's talking about. And so, to do that, he's sending these three men that he describes as being proven to be earnest in their actions. And I think that's a great challenge for us this week as we think about this. The first part of the, the challenge of this text is are we... Are we relying on God for our daily bread? Are we fully relying on him? That means trusting that God will provide for us, but also not worrying about tomorrow. So this goes way beyond bread and finances, right? This goes into God's provision for our whole lives. Our tendency to worry about tomorrow, where the Bible tells us, ask for your daily bread. Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. And that was a really hard one for some of us, myself included. I have a really hard time with that because oftentimes I'll lose sleep at night because regularly I'm worrying about the things that I don't have control over. And we do that again and again. But I have to remind myself that God has always given what is needed. And when it isn't needed, I don't have it. But God gives us exactly what we need. And that I think the answer to trusting God for our daily bread, the answer to, re- to being able to actually do that, is to remember our daily bread from yesterday. To thank him for yesterday's bread. The Old Testament is just so repetitive in, in its commands to the Israelites to remember. Remember, remember, remember tells the Israelites to remember because it also tells them they are a stiff-necked and forgetful people. That applies to us as well. We are stiff-necked and forgetful. We stress out about tomorrow, but we forgot the miracles God did yesterday. The act of remembering and thanking God for what's going on in our lives encourages us to, to trust in him in the moment and not worry about tomorrow. The second thing that I think that this this really challenges us in this text, as we look at the actions of Titus and the other nameless men that are collecting here, is are we acting honorably in the world? We should always look at these things and, and judge our lives by them. Are we acting honorably? Are we living above reproach? In other words, are we honorable when no one is looking These are the kind of things that don't just make sense to the modern world. They just don't, because people expect us to lie a little bit, to cheat a little bit. The bar is set so low in this world that when you act honorably consistently, people tend to be surprised and question what you're doing. Even more than that, the world around us expects us to think of ourselves first. That has a flavor of wisdom, though, doesn't it? Make sure that you're taken care of, and then you can help others. That sounds like wisdom, but the problem is that that doesn't show up in these verses. It certainly doesn't show up in the Philippians 2 verse that we read with the mind of Christ in the way that he set out an example for us. I think the only way for us to really accomplish this kind of life, this kind of of radical dependence on God, uh, this kind of acting honorably and, and just in the world around us. I think the way in which we do this is to be surrounded by other believers. And, and, I, and I mean the beloved community. I mean the church. We have to surround ourselves with other people to keep us honest, right? to keep us honorable, and to remind us that we have to be constantly reliant on him. And I mean that because I believe that this is the way, and I'm speaking of the church, I believe that this is the way that Jesus left for his disciples. Living life together is the way that he left them. Sharing to meet each other's needs. Worshiping together. Communing together. Eating together. It's the way that Jesus set out for believers to be able to live this kind of life. He didn't set the disciples out on their own to be lone rangers and figure it out on their own. He gave them a beloved community, a beloved fellowship. And that's a tool that God uses to keep us honorable and keep us sharing in each other's needs. And in a radically individualistic age that we live in now, We need to lean into that more than ever. The church needs to be the church. We have an answer for the loneliness and despair that our world feels. That answer is found in a community, a family of like-minded but very different people. That can look very messy at times. With this idea of fellowship and community... We can't force either. We can't just say, let's make a great community. Let's have a great fellowship and and strive to that end. Our text today did show us, though, how to do it. How to achieve this kind of fellowship together. Look one more time, all the way back at verse 5 in chapter 8. Paul is speaking of the Macedonians, right? Those believers in in Philippi and Thessalonica. Halfway through verse 5, he said, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So the key to making the fellowship of believers great is not by making it first and foremost in our lives. Again, complete reverse of human logic. It doesn't make sense. In order to make this fellowship great, we need to not put this fellowship first. But if we want to make the church great, we make Jesus first and foremost in our hearts. And then naturally, we love what he loves. We love what he loves. Because the church isn't great because of its inherent wonderfulness, right? If you look at the church, it's a group of messy believers who've made a lot of mistakes and are coming together to try to do better, right? That in itself isn't inherently wonderful. The church is great because Jesus loves the church. That's what makes it great. It's given its sense of greatness because of the sacrifice which was sacrificed for it. What was given for it gives it its value. The church is great because Jesus loves it. That's what makes it great, period. And When you really care for someone, when you really love someone, we all know this to be true. When you really love someone, you start to love the things that they love. right? When you really care about someone, you care for the things that they care for. That's exactly what the Macedonians had been doing as evidenced in verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So as we come forward for communion today, let's, let's remember that this is all of us sharing in an act of soul-nourishing worship. And in that, we honor and love the author of all good things, the author of love that gave himself to purchase us. So as you come forward for communion today, reflect that you are not doing this alone. You are doing this in a group of Messy people who are also headed in the same direction as you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for what you've done uh, throughout time. We're thankful for the example that's been handed down by Christ to us. We are thankful that we can see that the things of this world are nothing in exchange for the things that you have for us, that you are preparing, that you have prepared for us. And Lord, as we uh, look at each other in community, I pray that you would soften our hearts, uh, allow us to see um, the needs of others, allow us to sacrifice in a way that is honoring of you. Lord, help us to be an honorable community in the world around us. Help us to be a light uh, to this neighborhood, to this city, and to the world around us. Not that we could become great, but because Jesus is great. Help us to lean into that. It's in his name we pray. Amen.